Welcome in the latest episode of that SEC podcast. I'm your host, Michael Brand. I go by SEC Mike on Twitter. And we got a little bit of a different show still away on vacation. So it lined up a little bit of a different format on this show. Going to have my buddy Jason Hirshhorn from the NFL. He's been on the show before, but uh, you know, it's slow in the SEC. I'm away on vacation, so I don't even know what the heck is going on this week. I apologize. I'll catch up by the time I get back, but I couldn't think of a better person to preview the upcoming Super Bowl talk, some NFL draft, and just kind of get an overall sense of the buzz going around in the NFL with my buddy, Jason Hershorn. We used to work together at NFL.com. He's still there. So, you know, we went about an hour plus. Really great stuff here from Jason. Let's kick it over to the interview. Hey, we're pleased to be joined once again, friend of the show, Jason Hirshhorn. You, he's been on the show before, spitballing on all kinds of off-season topics, works for NFL.com, founder of the Leap Green Bay Packers newsletter, the best newsletter out there, in my opinion. Jason, my man, it's always an honor to have you on the show. How you doing, brother? You know, I, I'm doing as well as one can, considering that we're in the sort of the death march to the Super Bowl. It's it's a busy time, as I'm sure you know, but I always want to make time for you, especially to talk some draft and some SEC football. Yeah, and I can't thank you enough. And uh, obviously you're based out of LA. That's where NFL.com and all that is. And uh, are, are you guys actually in the stadium now? Because I remember when I was out there, that was that was the speculation. We were in Culver City and the, and the move was going to be to the uh, – the stadium there's SoFi stadium is that where the, you're actually located now not literally but more or less like we share a parking lot with SoFi stadium uh that also means we share all of the main arteries of traffic with SoFi <laughs> stadium so getting in and out is an absolute delight I assure you but yeah you know right there in Southern California you know even in the winter the weather's still nice so I can't complain too much Okay. Well, uh, so big game, obviously. We, we don't talk a lot of NFL on this show, but there's so many SEC connections to this Super Bowl. So I had to have you on to, to discuss the Super Bowl, the upcoming NFL draft. But before we get to that, Jason, uh, I know you spent some time there for the national championship game. You actually got to go down to the Media Days event and you got to uh, you know speak with a lot of the Georgia staff and Georgia players. And the hot topic right now, Georgia Bulldog fans, yes, they're on cloud nine, back-to-back national champions. Oh, I but, imagine so, yeah. But they're sitting on pins and needles as well, Jason, because uh, Todd Munkin, at least as as of this recording, we are recording on on Saturday, February 4th. There's there's no news that I'm aware of, but uh, Todd Munkin is, is receiving interest from apparently multiple NFL programs to be an offensive coordinator. What can you share? What would you pick up from Todd Munkin at Media Days? And, and do you think um, he would be a good fit for an NFL team? Or do you think he would should stay at Georgia? What's your thoughts on all that? Well, I'll take that last part first. We know that he can be successful in the NFL because he's done that already. Remember, he left a head coaching position at Southern Miss to be the offensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, one of the teams that appears to be interested in Todd Munkin now. And he was not the play caller that entire time in Tampa. He was only calling plays that final season, but we saw a very vertically minded 
explosive offense, something obviously Georgia fans are quite familiar with. So he definitely knows how to run a successful NFL offense. And with NFL caliber players, you know, he can do a lot of the stuff that he has been doing at Georgia. So I think the fit is not really much of a question because he's really established that he can do that already. It's more of a question of, does he actually want to go back there? He has a very good deal at Georgia. Obviously, the expectations are very high. Working for Kirby Smart can be very demanding on any number of assistant coaches, but he doesn't have to deal with a lot of the stuff he'd have to deal with in the NFL. You know, if you're an NFL coordinator, you have to meet the media every single week. As you know, that's not how things work in college. So there'd be less on his plate in terms of the media requirements. Obviously, he wouldn't have to recruit players. That's another big difference, too. And we are seeing that there are, especially with the younger coaches, more of a willingness to jump to the NFL, knowing that they don't have to worry about those things. But Monken's not really in that boat. You know, he's in his early 50s. He's spent a lot of time in college and in the NFL. He's been with multiple franchises in the latter regard. So it's really hard to say. What I picked up from talking to him is that in terms of football coaches, he's a very different kind of cat. Like he certainly knows football as well as any coach you're going to talk to at that level. The difference is he's a lot more candid. He's a lot more honest. He's not as guarded as you typically see from any football coach, regardless of their exact position, which is something that you might could uh, be in on before I went to media day. And I appreciate you for it. So I could see him making the jump to the NFL and being successful in it. But that's different than saying, I expect him to. I think he's got to be blown away with a godfather offer because he has it so good at Georgia. You know, they could win and are probably going to be the favorites to win the next national title. That'd be three in a row. Extremely difficult to do. And I think that would matter to him. So I, I can't say I have any strong prediction. The NFL interest is valid. Like they, they have a good reason for wanting Todd Monken, but that by itself may not be enough to pull him out. Now, without having any knowledge of... Uh you know, the specifics of, of what he could potentially get at a, at a Tampa or, or Baltimore Ravens. Um, you referenced it there. Todd Munkin is, I believe, he's the highest paid assistant coach in all of college football at a, at around $2 million per season. Any idea if, uh, is, is that like the going rate for an NFL offensive coordinator or would it be a potential uh, pay cut? I, I couldn't imagine he'd be getting a pay cut if he were going to make that jump. Do coordinators make that in the NFL? Well, they can. And this is actually a very interesting moment for coordinator pay because Vic Fangio just accepted a job with the Miami Dolphins. He's now making reportedly over $4 million annually. That's considered to be the highest amount, not just of current coordinators, but any NFL coordinator ever. And that's naturally going to move up the bar. So if you're Todd Monk, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to clear that mark, but could you get closer to three? Could you get closer to three and a half? That does not seem crazy. You have multiple teams coming at you. You know, the Baltimore Ravens in particular, they may not have a lot more time with Lamar Jackson, depending on how things go. So if they're going to really make a run at the Super Bowl, and they need to throw all of their resources, especially the non-personnel resources, into the 2023 equation. That could mean Todd Mocking getting a very, very nice payday there if he chooses to go. So I definitely think that his pay could go up. I mean, it probably will go up if he goes to the NFL or goes anywhere for that matter. But again, it's going to take a lot to get Todd Mocking to leave Georgia simply because he has it so good there. It's not just the success. It's the whole apparatus that Kirby Smart has developed there over the years. Right. And speaking of Kirby Smart, that's where I wanted to go next with you, Jason. I can't recall specifically maybe it was you know the last time the browns had an opening or something like that but i just i remember some rumblings that kirby smart 
not that he was trying to leave Georgia or anything like that, but I, I think there were some overtures made for Kirby to potentially, just to see if he was interested in making that move to the NFL. Obviously, he was not, and he's, I mean, he's a king down there in Athens, so maybe he never wants to leave. He's the favorite son down there. He's going to have a statue outside of Sanford Stadium when his career's over. But, you know, I could certainly see maybe wanting a new challenge, maybe wanting to to conquer that that hill that Nick Saban never managed to do. Maybe, I mean, another way you could possibly look at it is he's he's so popular right now in Athens. I mean, there's almost nowhere to go but down. Remember, that's kind of what's forced Steve Spurrier to leave Florida. They had one 10-2 season. He said, my God, these people mm-hmm. are are completely ungrateful for, for even – you know, a top five finish. So again, we're, we are very, very, very far from that ever happening in Georgia. But could you see a time where the, where the NFL would be interested in Kirby Smart? Or do you think he's a guy that is uh, strictly a college coach? Is it possible? Yes. And I don't think that time is coming up soon. The situation might be actually more akin to what happened with Pete Carroll at USC. You know, there was a time directly after USC went to those national title games that the NFL was interested in Pete Carroll, like directly after, not when the Seahawks came calling almost a decade after or half decade after, rather. And he didn't go. It took time for basically he not living up to his own expectations. You know, he set the bar so high that... You know, it's really hard to compete with that. That could eventually happen, obviously, with Kirby Smart and Georgia because of how dominant they've been over the last two seasons. But again, we're just not there yet. Now, in terms of a team having interest at some point, from Kirby Smart's perspective, I think it would have to be a team that is not just an NFL team, obviously, but a team that's better situated than the one that Nick Saban took over with the Miami Dolphins in 2005. You know, everyone's heard the story a million times. They were thought they were getting Drew Brees. Drew Brees fails the physical. They let him go, goes to the Saints, has the Hall of Fame career. That is sort of this big what-if sliding doors moment, and not just the NFL, but in all of high-level football. Because if Drew Brees goes there, maybe Nick Saban never leaves. Maybe the Alabama dynasty that we're we're talking about for a decade and change now never happens. So if you're Kirby Smart and you decide at some point in the future you want to jump to the NFL and you have opportunities, I think you feel like you need to have – a, a route to an elite quarterback or an elite quarterback already there. Now, that was the thing more than anything else that kept Nick Saban from being successful in the NFL as a head coach because he had had success in the NFL as an assistant. You know, he was part of that Bill Belichick system. You know, It's a million years ago now, but that's where he came from. And if Kirby Smart was ever going to pull that trigger, I think he would have to put himself in position where either the team in question has that quarterback or has a realistic path to one right away because I don't think he wants to have that same experience that Nick Saban had. And obviously, they know each other and they know those experiences very well. They were on that Miami Dolphins staff in 2006. Well, if you want to talk about uh, getting the most out of a quarterback, that's my guy, Josh Heupel, down there in Tennessee. And the really the only reason Beautiful I, segue. Beautiful segue. <laughs> the only reason I, I even bring Heupel in the NFL into consideration because I don't I mean I know you and I have talked about this off air the fit does not seem to be there but you know Tony Romo mentioned it during a broadcast for some reason so I mean I I can't imagine he's just pulling that out of thin air he must have got it from somebody but could you imagine Josh Heupel making that jump to the NFL given um, you know the the fact that so much of what Josh Heupel does and, and why his system works at the college level, it just simply would not translate to, to NFL. 
Yeah, we have seen the NFL and the college game come closer together in terms of scheme, especially in offense. You know, you're going to see it in the Super Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs. But that doesn't necessarily mean that an offense like Josh Heupel's, as he has run it, would work in the NFL. I'm sure your listeners know from having watched, I'm going to guess, a fair amount of Tennessee football at this point, that the splits are so wide in college, at least in that system, that it just makes it tangibly different than what you're able to do in the NFL. It's not just the hashes are wider, though that's a part of it. It's It artificially creates these large running lanes for the wide zone runs that a lot of that offense is built off of that cannot exist like geometrically in the NFL. Now, it doesn't mean there are concepts that wouldn't work in the NFL. We see a lot of those every Sunday. But to build the entire plane out of what Josh Heupel does in the NFL would be extremely difficult. And for that reason, I think that's pretty unlikely. He also seems like he's doing just fine at Tennessee and in the college game in general. Now, I think there's some interesting discussions about which parts of Tennessee's offense can translate to the NFL as we talk about some of the players from Tennessee and other SEC schools that might be in the NFL very, very soon. But in terms of the scheme whole cloth, it's just really hard as of this moment to envision that working in the NFL. You know, maybe Josh Heupel can adapt more than I'm giving him credit for. I, I certainly don't want to shortchange him. But we just not have seen, or we have not seen that pretty pure version of that offense exists in the NFL unchanged. And until that happens, I'm going to be skeptical of that kind of a jump. How quickly would the uh, roster revolt when he makes them run a hundred plays in a, in a game up, you know, tempo. And uh, I mean, I just, I can't imagine that working in an NFL locker room. Well, that's part of it too. Like you can't go as up tempo in the NFL as you do in college, like by rule, like it's, it's, it's harder to do that. Like you can go faster. Like there are definitely different tempos you see in the NFL, but nothing at that pace. And also you look at not just Josh Heupel's offense, but a lot of the similar offense, the ones he comes out of, you'll see receivers not really running routes on certain kinds of running plays. That's just really hard to do in the NFL. Not because you couldn't literally just have a receiver stand out there, but one of the big things in virtually every NFL offense at this point is sort of that like illusion of complexity where a bunch of different plays look the same pre-snap and for the first like half second into the play, you know, when you see a receiver just immediately just kind of like stand up out of his stance and just not move, like, you know what it's going to be. You just, it's harder to get away with that in the NFL. And that's such a core piece of what not just Josh Heupel does, but a lot of those offenses. So, you know, some of those concepts can be translated, but the entire offense, it just we have not seen that as of yet. And the last uh, SEC coach that I wanted to ask you about that potentially could make that jump to the NFL, and I'm not sitting here saying this is going to happen. I mean, I can already see the comments. They're getting mad that we're even uh, you know, suggesting that these guys would ever leave their institutions. But Lane Kiffin has been rumored. I think he even interviewed for, what was it, the Minnesota Vikings Last time that came open, I, I believe that was the report. He's obviously been a head coach. <laughs> of course, that, that didn't go too well for him there. But uh, And he, he kind of runs his Ole Miss program like an NFL system with all the, the free agents. He's, he's more open to that than anybody in the SEC. Could you see a time where Lane Kiffin makes that jump to the NFL once again? In terms of what he's able to do as a coach, you can absolutely see it. You know, he runs a lot of the things you see in the NFL and even some of the things that are different, like think not this past season as much, but the season before at Ole Miss with Matt Corral, with that super, super RPO heavy scheme. It's hard to go that hard into RPO at the NFL, but you can build a lot of your offense out of it. 
And he's as creative as almost anybody when it comes to that. So yeah, from that perspective, you can see it. I think the harder sell, and it's not going to be with a locker room. It's going to be with team ownership because most of these owners were in the game when everything went south with Lane Kiffin with the then Oakland Raiders. Now, there are a lot of other factors there, like the Raiders had trouble directly before Lane Kiffin. They had trouble after Lane Kiffin. There may have been more issues there than whatever was going on with Lane individually, but you know, there was definitely a lot of criticism, some of which is still held, that he didn't handle that situation very well in terms of the relationship with ownership. So if you're an owner, knowing that that was in his past, admittedly quite a while ago, but still, and knowing that he's very active on social media, uh, he's definitely one of the largest personalities we have in all of the football world. Trying to see that translate to a more buttoned up NFL situation with ownership, that's the harder sell. I don't think it's impossible. Not all of these owners see things the same way. Now, over time, ownership changes, but it, it might be a little while before you have an owner who's ready to pull the trigger on Lane Kiffin simply because of how different, let's say, that he is in terms of a personality. And I personally, as someone who covers the NFL primarily, would love to see it. I think he's one of the more creative offensive minds that we have at any level. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if he spends the vast majority, if not literally the entirety of his uh, coaching career in college from this point forward. And I just, I pray every day, Jason, that it's in the SEC because he's he's damn content gold for me. <laughs> oh, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So obviously we got to talk Super Bowl, Super Bowl 57, if I know my numer- Roman numerals correctly. I may be wrong there, but uh, Kansas City, obviously, versus Philadelphia. Um, as we're recording again, sat- Saturday, February 4th here, uh, the Eagles favored by one and a half, as I have it. The game is in Arizona. I don't know if you're technically supposed to say Phoenix or Glendale. I, I always get those confused. But that's neither here nor there. So many SEC connections in this ball game, Jason. And I think we got to start with Jalen Hurts. Second round pick. He's been a revelation for the Eagles. You know, did you ever see Jalen Hurts becoming this good of an NFL player? Not even just this good, but this style of quarterback. We always knew that he could run. Like that was clear from his freshman year at Alabama. But he's a much more accomplished passer. And I think we even saw that final year at Oklahoma. You know, that's really surprised me. I was covering the Los Angeles Chargers the year he was coming out. And I know that's a player that they liked. Now, they ultimately went with Justin Herbert, and I don't think they have any problems with that decision, but it gives you an idea of the kind of potential that I think NFL teams saw in him that maybe a lot of us, myself included, didn't, because he was, even at his best, a fairly limited passer in college. And, you know, he's not slinging it around the field the way that Patrick Mahomes does. I think that's also fair to say, but, you know, he is a pretty versatile passer, and they do a very good job of taking advantage of his legs, even in situations where he's not running. And it really has been the special sauce with Nick Sirianni and Shane Steichen, the offensive coordinator in Philly, is that they create so many looks where it looks like he either can run or is going to run. And that really slows down that pass rush. And when you have an offensive line as good as the the, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles have, you know that by itself might be enough to win. And then they also have those monsters on the outside, both SEC guys. AJ Brown and Devontae Smith. You know, when you have all of that talent on offense and the quarterback is operating at such a high level, it is extremely difficult for any defense to stop. And it's not like the Chiefs have this world beater of a defense. So if you're wondering why the Eagles are favored against Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, that's the reason. Yeah, I'm glad you you referenced that, Jason, because that, that was my next question. 
Devonta Smith, the Heisman Trophy winner, A.J. Brown, uh, the Titans. I live here in Nashville. I know it. They've not been the same without A.J. Brown in the lineup, both of them really, but but A.J. Brown, has he been really a catalyst that, that has helped uh, Jalen Hurts take that next step? He's been the catalyst. You look at what A.J. Brown, not just what he was with the Titans. Now, he was an exceptional player in his time in Tennessee. You know, he wasn't an all-pro caliber player, but he was, you know, that half step behind. He was knocking on the door. And I, I think the Titans, my understanding at least, is that they had some concerns about his health long-term. He had some nagging injuries. And, you, you know, you can see how that could scare off a team that was about to otherwise make a huge financial commitment to him. But instead, they, they trade him to the Eagles for a first-round pick, immediately turn around and use that first-round pick on Traylon Burks, a, a player who's not as athletically gifted, but is similarly built. Like, he looks just as, like, thick and as broad when you're standing next to him. I think that's why they made that transition, because obviously Burks, as a rookie, would be cheaper. But you, you go to the Eagles. They have used Brown as well as he possibly can. He's doing all of the things he did in Tennessee. You see him on a lot of these heavy play action concepts where he's running either like a 10-yard dig route or something deeper, and he just destroys defenses on those because he's so good at the little nuances, you know, making a defender think that he's going to cut sooner than he is or cut a different direction than he is, and suddenly he's wide open behind everybody. Now, he was already doing those things in Tennessee, but now with all of the eye candy going on up front, with Jalen Hurts' mobility and that stuff really freezing the defense, it is the best possible situation for A.J. Brown. You know, he played as well as any receiver in the NFL this season, not named Justin Jefferson. That is how good he was. And yeah, he's, what, 25, maybe 26? Like, he he has so much road ahead of him. We're not just talking about a guy who was dominant this year. Like, if he stays healthy, he is on a Hall of Fame trajectory and... Now, two years ago, that would have been insane to say because he had played at such high level, but like that's where we are now. Yeah, name drop Justin Jefferson, another SEC guy. But I, I wanted to ask you uh, two guys on the other guys on the Eagles real quick. Do, will they factor in? Do you think at all? Uh, I apologize my my uh, for my ignorance here. I'm I'm not a don't really follow the Eagles too closely, but Jordan Davis and Nakobe Dean, the two freshmen from Georgia. I'm just excuse me. Rookies, see, I'm pure college mode. I called them freshmen. But uh, I can only imagine the, the battles in that locker room between uh, all these Alabama guys and all these Georgia guys. Jordan Davis, Nicobe Dean, will they play a, a factor at all in this Super Bowl, do you think? Well, Dean has not been as, as big of a factor this season. Now, that's part of the depth ahead of him. Jordan Davis missed a chunk of the season to injury, but when he's been healthy and he's available now, he has been a big factor in limited snaps. So it's a very deep defensive line. Like you kind of forget that like Indomitian Sue is there. Like at the top, you have Fletcher Cox, Javon Hargrave, two really, really stud interior defensive linemen and, and Sue right behind them. So, you know, he is fighting for opportunities there because of how deep they are. And even with that, when he has played, he has made an impact. He has been the exact player you'd expect him to be as a run defender, like he's used in a fairly similar fashion in that regard. But when he's had opportunities to rush the passer, you know, even if he hasn't been getting home that much, you can see the amount of attention that he gets from opposing offensive linemen. You know, it's not just that he's that big and that athletic, like he's more nuanced as a pass rusher than most rookies, at least at that size are. So could he have a role in the Super Bowl? Absolutely. Like they rotate so well on that defensive line. So it's one of the big reasons why a lot of people on that Eagle staff are positioned for promotion. Like Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Gannon, the defense coordinator, has interviewed for multiple head coaching jobs this season. Some of the guys lower on that food chain 
you know, they could fill in for him if he leaves for a job. Uh, they may be defense coordinators themselves soon because of just the way they deploy the talent. Like, as you know, watching the SEC, a lot of teams in that conference have a ton of talent, but you can tell which teams know how to deploy that talent best. That has been the case with the Eagles on defense this year. Hmm. Well, when everybody talks Kansas City, they want to talk Patrick Mahomes and this high-flying offense. I'm not even going to mention him because he didn't play in the SEC until we until we absorb Texas Tech. I don't care. I wanted to ask you about uh, you know what appears to be maybe the best defensive lineman in the NFL this year, Chris Jones, another SEC guy. Uh, I, I know he came up huge, obviously, in the AFC Championship game. Uh, how big of a, a factor will Chris Jones play if the Chiefs are going to win this Super Bowl? It's a huge factor. And, and this isn't new with Chris Jones. He has been the most important member of that front seven for Kansas City pretty much since his second season there. And the only time since he really established himself as a high caliber defensive lineman that he hasn't made this level of an impact was a brief period last season when they were playing him more at end as opposed to in the interior. You know, they they quickly realized that was not the best way to deploy him, moved him back inside, went back to being Chris Jones. And he has been that caliber of a player again this year. You know, he made the All-Pro team for the Pro Football Writers of America, which is a group that I'm a member of. We do our own, essentially, like we call it the All-NFL team. It's kind of like a duplicate of the all NFL or the all the all pro team in certain ways. He was one of my choices for the defensive line. He has been as impactful as almost any defensive lineman we've seen in the NFL recently, not named Aaron Donald. And that's just an incredibly high standard. Like he's maybe the best defensive player of his generation. And that's the only guy who's been definitively better than you at your position. Well, you've had a pretty damn good career. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And he he's not alone, Jason. I mean, we got Willie Gay, Nick Bolton, my guy, Trey Smith, Miko Harmon. I've not seen much of him. Uh, Kadarius Tony. Uh, any impact you see from any of those SEC veterans for the Chiefs in the upcoming Super Bowl? Well, Miko Hardman, while not officially ruled out, it, it does not sound like he is going to play. Andy Reid said that he would be doubtful for the Super Bowl. So, you know, you never know with the Super Bowl. Like, if it's even possible, you'll see players push it because of the stage. But at this, at this moment, I would not expect him to play based on what Andy Reid said. Now, for, for Kadarius Tony, that's where things get interesting because he's only spent about half the season with the Chiefs. He spent the previous season and a half with the Giants, was not very successful there, though it appears that it was largely a Giants problem, not a Kadarius Tony problem. You know, he's not a complete receiver, and he wasn't at Florida either. But you look at all the things he can do when he's deployed correctly. There are very few players in the NFL who are better with the ball in his hands in an open space. The Kansas City Chiefs are the best team full stop in terms of getting players in that position. So you combine those two things and you could see a number of special plays that Andy Reid and his staff draw up for Kadarius Toney because that's the kind of impact you, he can make. Like this is the Super Bowl. You, there's no reason to sit on any, any of your plays. Like if you think they can help you now, you're going to use it. And Darius Tony is the type of player for which you build those special plays because of how special of an athlete he is. So have you um, made your pick for the game? Who, who do you think is going to win? And, and keep in mind, I'm, I'm not putting this out right away. I'm putting it, this out later in the week. It's so hard. In some ways, this reminds me of that Broncos Seahawks Super Bowl from about a decade ago. You know, you had one team coming in with the established quarterback, you know, Patrick Mahomes, rightfully so, you know, fully crowned, has an MVP, has a Super Bowl. He's probably going to have another MVP here in not too long. And he comes in with obviously a very talented team. Like the Chiefs, by no stretch of the imagination, were one of the like 
you know, three, four most talented rosters in the NFL this season. But on paper, the Eagles are a more talented team. They just don't come in with the same pedigree because, you know, Jalen Hurts, this was this season was his second time even reaching the playoffs through no fault of his own, obviously. You know, it's a very young roster. They they have some players from that last year bowl run that they made about a half decade ago, especially on the defense. But most of that team is new. Most of that team is very young. And those teams tend to be discounted when it comes to the Super Bowl. But this staff has done such a spectacular job deploying this talent. And I look at that defense. It has its flaws, but it's the better of the two units. There are ways that they can slow down the Chiefs, even with the talent that they have, a quarterback and a tight end with Travis Kelsey, a future All-Famer. This is where I think the receivers really come into play. The Chiefs have several capable wide receivers. We talked about Tony already. You know, Juju Smith-Schuster's there. Marquez Valdez-Scantling. None of those guys, at least as of this moment, are true field tilters, whereas you look at the Eagles... And they've got, you know, two number one receivers right at the top and then several other guys who can make an impact. That's where I think you can see this kind of tilt the other way. If the Eagles can get any kind of a lead and get past halftime, that's where they can just destroy you on defense because they have this extremely creative, versatile run game. You know, it's not just what they can do with Jalen Hurts, it's what they can do with Miles Sanders, with those other running backs there. And that's where they can just chew up that clock and keep Patrick Mahomes off the field. Now, they have to get to that point first, but the path is there. For that reason, I, I think I am leaning Eagles. You know, the, the game's basically a pick them by the uh, or, or by the line. So, you know, I might flip this a number of times between now and kickoff, but that is as of this moment where I stand. Regardless if the Eagles win or not, but um, I have to imagine... Uh, you know, Jalen Hurts, his success. Does, does that does that alter at all how these NFL teams evaluate quarterbacks? Because I realize he was a second round pick, so it's not like he, Tom Brady, came out of almost nowhere. But uh, from what I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I but the way I remember it, I mean, I don't think he was in first round consideration. And and I, if I recall correctly, it was kind of a surprise that he went as high as he did. Um, do, do you think his success? changes anything for for teams drafting quarterbacks it's very difficult to say in terms of him as a draft prospect there were teams that were considering him in the first round or at least would have considered him the first round if they were in position to select him at the back end of day one you know I, again i was covering the Chargers at the time i know that was a player that they liked and depend and like depending on what could have happened like if they had not taken a quarterback with the sixth overall pick and it got close to the end of the round. There was a scenario where they could have traded back into the first round to pick Jalen Hurts. That's how highly they thought of him. So I, I don't want to shortchange him as a prospect, but he definitely wasn't this kind of a player as a prospect. At least that's not the perspective that most of the NFL teams had. The other thing here is there's not a lot of players at quarterback built like Jalen Hurts who can throw like Jalen Hurts, even the way he threw as a college prospect. And he's a lot thicker. Like he's not the tallest guy, but he's not short. You know, he's built like a linebacker. I, I think a lot of people have made that point. And there are other quarterbacks who are built that way, but they tend to be much taller and or much rawer as passers, which is saying something because, again, he was not the most polished passer coming in. So it's hard to find a prospect like Jalen Hurts. And for that reason, I'm not sure there's really a lesson to take there. But we are going to see some interesting things with the draft this year because there are several quarterbacks that – let's just say don't really fit the mold, including another former Alabama signal caller who is going to really stretch a lot of teams' definition of what is an acceptable size for a quarterback. Not that he plays like Jalen Hurts, it's just there's other factors here that teams have to consider. 
But in terms of what Hertz could do as a runner, even if he had not developed as much as he has as a passer, I, I think they're probably going to be in the long run, more teams that are open to that. But that may be more of a reflection on the way that coaches change over time, or not like individual coaches necessarily, but coaching staffs, sort of coaching movements. That has become different in just the last five years. So like five years from now, maybe see a lot more teams open to those kind of prospects. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, Jalen Hurts was just not getting drafted as a quarterback. I think that's probably fair to say. So the NFL is changing. Jalen Hurts is a part of that change. I don't know how directly he's going to cause teams to reevaluate quarterbacks, but at some point, especially if Jalen Hurts is able to maintain the success beyond the season, it is going to have some kind of an impact. I'm glad you referenced the draft because that's where I'm going next. But uh, before we get there, just real quick, I wanted to just ask you your thoughts on, on NFL circles and Mississippi State, because I think obviously uh, not even everybody in the SEC gives Mississippi State their credit. I don't think. I mean, a lot of people probably more nationally than anything see that see them as like an afterthought. But we already mentioned Chris Jones. You mentioned Fletcher Cox, J uh, Jeffrey Simmons. Dak Prescott, Preston Smith, Montez Sweat, Elton Jenkins, Charles Cross. I mean, these these are this is like a who's who of NFL talent here, all out of little old Mississippi State. Uh, do you think that uh, does Mississippi State get you know it, it's due respect in NFL circles? Do you think do you, do you think that when a when a player comes out of Mississippi State, maybe they maybe they give them a little bit more uh, evaluation due to all the the star talent that's come out of there? There's a lot of factors that you just laid out there. I would point this out, not just with Mississippi State. If you're in SEC school outside of that, like maybe very back end, you know, with Vanderbilt, at least where Vanderbilt has been of late, obviously that's starting to change with what's going on there. But if you're one of those SEC schools that's in the middle, especially if you're above the middle, you have a lot of talent, like a quote unquote bad recruiting SEC school for the most part is still producing at what, like, like a top 30, 40 level. Like that's just going to ultimately result in a fair amount of NFL talent. So I think that's part of it, right? Like that's why Mississippi State has been able to produce all of those players that you mentioned. And even some of those who were outliers as high school recruits, like Dak Prescott obviously was not on everybody's radar. That was more situational. And they were able to develop players. You know, Elton Jenkins, another one you mentioned, was not this highly recruited superstar high school athlete. Goes to Mississippi State and becomes a five position offensive lineman who goes in the second round. So, you know, that's part of it. And in terms of what the NFL thinks, I gather there's more respect for that program than maybe, you know, the college circles have. If you remember, this was probably like three, maybe four years ago, Mississippi State had all but hired a coach that basically left Mississippi State at the altar for an NFL head coaching job. Like they were all about to hire Joe Judge as their next head coach. He ends up going to the New York Giants instead, which you can understand how that happens, right? Like if you have an opportunity to take an NFL coaching job, nine times out of 10 in that position, you're going to do it. But that's the level of coaching, uh, just candidate that they're able to attract. And yeah, it's, you know, it's not obviously a premium SEC job. We know which programs those are, but you can do a lot of damage at Mississippi State. You can have a lot of second lives after Mississippi State. Like you can go there, build up your resume. And even if things don't go well, as we saw this, you know, with a couple of head coaches ago, you can still go on and have more success as a coordinator and then again as a head coach. So from that perspective, it's a pretty strong program, even if it doesn't match up to obviously the Alabamas, the LSUs, the Floridas, you get the idea. Like it's still a very high functioning program in the biggest conference in college football. 
Yeah, and, and to your point to the recruiting, I'll just use Florida as an example. I, I think they finished like 12th, 13th in the country in recruiting, but their fans are pissed because that's 6th or 7th in the SEC. And they, how can we compete for SEC titles being 6th or 7th? But, hey, that's life in the SEC. So mm-hmm. let, let's move on to the draft. And I got to ask you about – I mean, this guy maybe is is the biggest you know, hot-button prospect – uh, in the entire draft, and that is one Will Levis, who I know Mel Kiper loves him for what that's worth. I don't know, but uh, you know, if I say anything bad about Will Levis, I just hate Kentucky and all this. What What's your thoughts on Will Levis? What's the buzz in, in the NFL? I mean, I guess I get the Josh Allen comparisons, but not really because, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't get it. But maybe you can talk some sense into me here. Well, actually, going to expand this to include another SEC quarterback in this draft with Anthony Richardson. This is not betting solely on what they did in college. Obviously, Will Levis had some great moments. He had a lot of less than great moments, especially this past season. It's that athletic profile and his experience in that offense, in particular at Kentucky. You know, even if it wasn't Liam Cohen running it in 2022. It was still a version of the Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay offense that is so in vogue in the NFL. Experience with that scheme, having those physical tools, that's going to put you on the NFL radar. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to have anywhere close to immediate success. Even if he's able to follow, for lack of a better way of putting it, the Josh Allen blueprint. Josh Allen was not a successful quarterback his first year. He was still an extremely inconsistent quarterback his second season. It wasn't until that third season when they added Stephon Diggs and some other players on that offense that he finally started to look like the player we think of today. That doesn't mean that Will Loves is going to do that. And like you, I have my doubts, but I do understand why NFL teams are willing to make that bet. When you have that kind of physical ceiling and you're as smart of a quarterback as the NFL seems to think that Will Levis is, that combination with NFL talent, with NFL coaching can, not necessarily will, but can lead to extremely high-end results. A version of this is what we saw a few years ago with Justin Herbert. Herbert wasn't as raw as Will Levis is, but he kind of came with the same sort of set of like strengths and weaknesses, right? Like all the physical gifts were there. He wasn't able to put put it all together at college. You know, some of that might've been coaching. Some of that might've been him. It's hard to say coming out of the draft, but like he still went six overall. I don't know that Will Levis is going to go top 10. It would not surprise me. I think Anthony Richardson, to bring him back into this, kind of fits that mold too. All the physical gifts that you could want. But there are concerns with him in terms of what happened in Florida. And it's not just what happened this season. You know, you go back to what happened, you know, late stages, Dan Mullen. I, it's pretty clear that he was the best physical talent they had at quarterback. And yet Mullen, who is a very smart X's and O's guy, a very smart coach, even if it didn't work out of Florida, that's still the caliber of coach he is didn't feel comfortable putting him in. And then even this past season, you know, in crunch time, you could see that coaching staff have trepidation in terms of putting the ball in his hands to make a big play, at least as a passer. You Early in the season, you know, I, I can't remember if it was the first or the second game that Florida played, but, you know, he led that game winning drive, but they weren't asking him to make a lot of difficult passes intentionally. They were afraid of what he might do. He's not at that point yet. And that's a reason why, you know, he's not going to be the first overall pick. He probably won't be the second quarterback taken, but why there's a very strong chance that he goes in the first round. Like those are situations, Levis and Richardson, where you're betting on athletic profile, you're betting on what an NFL coaching staff can do with that talent. And you're hoping for the best. You know, if you miss on a quarterback, you're probably getting fired. That's true, regardless of what the prospect is. So if you're going to roll the dice, 
roll the dice on the best ball of clay you can find. That's kind of the logic that they use. Right. And I don't know if you remember this, Jason, but leading up to Justin Herbert be, being drafted, I remember you you asked my opinion of him. Now, it, it was limited because I the only game I remember watching him, I think they played Auburn or something like that. And he looked he looked completely lost playing Auburn. I said, this guy's a joke. I, if the Chargers take him, they're screwed. He's one of the best passers in the NFL. So mm-hmm. what do I know? But uh, you mentioned Bryce Young already, stature. Probably going to be a, a question mark for some people. Uh, he got injured this last season in the Arkansas game, missed uh, the Texas A&M game, but uh, he was not down for very long. He got right back into the lineup. Uh, thoughts on, on Bryce Young? Because to me, um, we'll get to the Bears in a second. I, I realize they already have a, a quarterback in place, but if you're holding the number one pick and you need a quarterback, I don't think there's any – option other than Bryce Young based on watching him play in college football. Uh, what's your thoughts and, and what's the buzz you're hearing with Bryce Young in NFL circles? Well, a lot of what you hear with Bryce Young is what you've been hearing about Bryce Young for the past year and change. Like he didn't just show up on the NFL radar this year, obviously, even though he wasn't eligible for the draft until 2023. You, you knew pretty early on in that first, well, not his true freshman season, in his redshirt freshman season, that he was going to get a very, very serious look from the NFL. And it, he, it is absolutely an eye of the beholder situation. If you're comfortable with the size, an NFL team is going to have a hard time finding a better passer in this year's draft. It's just as simple as that. But there are a lot of teams that are not going to feel comfortable pulling the trigger on a quarterback that small. It's not the height. I mean, the height's a factor, but it's the mass. There has not been a quarterback drafted in the first round under 200 pounds since the merger. Now, maybe you can get over 200 pounds and sort of a like combine waterway. You, you chug a gallon right before they measure you sort of way. But I think teams know that he is going to essentially play for the foreseeable future at below 200 pounds. You don't see many quarterbacks below 210, and he's maybe in some situations below 190. And that's going to be a tough pill for teams to swallow because it doesn't mean that he can't play in the NFL, obviously. Like if you're able to throw some of the passes, able to throw some of those weird platforms, yeah, you can play in the NFL. It's what happens when a defensive lineman gets to you first and what happens when a defensive lineman gets to you multiple times in a game. And it's a durability question because you can be a great quarterback and if you've been crushed, it may not matter. And that is going to be really the crux of the evaluation for most teams because they know what he can do. They, they know that he can operate an NFL style offense. You know, they've seen enough of what he did at Alabama. Not that that's a true NFL style offense, but there's enough in there that you can extrapolate. I think everyone's comfortable with that. It's again, are you comfortable as an NFL team with that size, with the concerns about durability? And he's a tough kid. If he's able to play, he's going to play. That's not a question. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what if he's not medically clear to play because his body just can't take it. And fair or not, I think there are going to be a lot of comparisons drawn to Tua, who's a physically larger person, but happened to have been the last you know, starting quarterback. At, or not the last time, but one of the recent starting quarterbacks at the University of Alabama and what's happened with him. I don't know if that's fair. I tend to think that it's not because they're just not the same size of athlete. They don't play the game the same way, but I, I think that might work against him. That's not to say he won't be the first overall pick. It's entirely possible the team picking number two at the moment might end up being the team that picks number one and selects him, but we will see. If you're, again, if you're an NFL team comfortable enough with the size my guess is that's the quarterback you're going to take because all the other quarterbacks, while larger in stature, come with bigger questions. I think it's probably fair to say. Right. 
Uh, how about Hendon Hooker, who obviously is, is banged up. He's down at the Senior Bowl. It's pretty rare, as, as I understand it, that the Senior Bowl takes players that are unable to physically participate. But uh, I heard Jim Nagy talking about it because he's a quarterback. They wanted him to go through the meetings and, and all those things. And he, as I understand it, he'll be good to go for the upcoming season. And I remember there was a time, Jason, where not that we were – mocking Hendon Hooker by any means because he was outstanding I think he should have been a Heisman finalist and I think had of they course be- I, I, I co-sign all of that I know where you're going with this but I just want to make it clear <laughs> Hendon Hooker was absolutely fantastic this season and it's just unfortunate that he got hurt but continue right had he not gotten hurt had they beaten South Carolina he probably wins the Heisman I mean he he was that good but there was certainly some eye rolls in our text thread when there was articles written where it was essentially like Who's doing well in college? Let's elevate them as a top five NFL draft pick. I don't I don't think Hendon Hooker was realistically ever in consideration for anybody in the know to be that caliber of a of a draft pick. And, and that was before the injury. So uh I, I don't know. What do you think his odds are of making it in the NFL? Because I, I have to imagine if he does get a clean bill of health, he will be probably a, even still an early draft pick. And when I say early, I, I mean, I don't know, but second, third, fourth round pick. And I could certainly see him making an NFL roster. But what do you, what's, your, what's your thoughts on Hendon Hooker? He is, in positive and negative ways, the most complex of these quarterback prospects because he's kind of all over the place in a lot of regards in terms of what teams look for in the evaluation process. You know, he largely came out, obviously he didn't play his entire career at Tennessee, but his most productive year by a sizable margin happened at Tennessee. And it's an offense that, as we were discussing earlier, like some of those concepts you see forms of in the NFL, but as an entire offense, you just don't see that. So there's going to be, in the eyes of NFL evaluators, a a bit of a, we have to teach him how to play at this level. He's also, and this is the other part of this besides injury, he's a very old prospect, like a 25-year-old rookie. It's not something that you see for quarterbacks outside of like guys who came out of BYU. Like it's just a totally different sort of situation. So he's an older prospect. He's coming off of that injury and he's coming out of a system that doesn't tend to prepare quarterbacks for the NFL in terms of what it asks the quarterback to do on a down-to-down basis. Then there's the other side of this, right? He, when he's healthy... Is incredibly physically gifted, gifted. Like he has the stature, he has the mobility, he has the arm. And I have not heard a single evaluator, not that I talked to all of them, obviously, but I haven't heard one say a single bad thing about him in terms of his football intelligence, his intelligence in general, his ability on the whiteboard. Like he's considered to be a very, very bright quarterback. Now, he probably should be, right? Like he's 25, he's old enough to rent a car. But that is going to win over. Like we see this year in, year out. In the evaluation process, quarterbacks that are able to impress coaches on the whiteboard are going to move up in the draft. So how do all those things factor in together? I really don't know. I I didn't think that he was going to be a first-round pick before the injury. I think the age was working against him too much and that he was going to have to move into a very different kind of offense no matter where he went in the NFL. But second round did not seem totally crazy to me, even if I wasn't convinced of that the whole way around. Now, having talked to a few more people in the NFL, I think day two is probably where he goes, even with the injury. Now, hes they say that he's on track to maybe get cleared medically around training camp. I, I don't know how true or not true that is, frankly, because I don't think that they even know how true that is. But 
you know, he's basically going to have a redshirt season. But if you're a team that's not drafting a quarterback in the first round, and obviously there'll be plenty of teams that need a quarterback that won't do it there, Hendon Hooker isn't this crazy alternate option because you could bring him in on day two. If it works out, great. You got a starting quarterback at a discount. If he doesn't, he's going to be the kind of quarterback you'd want in your quarterback room anyway. So there's still value there. And because he's so mature, because he's so physically gifted, I think there's a lot of things you can do with him once he's healthy. So I find him to be fascinating for all those reasons because I really don't know ultimately what happens with him because you know if he was healthy, it'd be a little clearer, but he's not. If he was younger, it'd be a little clearer, but he's not. And if he was coming out of a different offense, it'd be clear, but it's not. And so you have all these different factors, but for a prospect that has all those positives we just laid out. So I'm fascinated to see where he goes. Now, the last quarterback I wanted to ask you about is, of course, Stetson Bennett just won the national championship. He's been celebrating, as I understand it, ever since. Uh, decided not to go to the Senior Bowl and then obviously had a run-in with the law there in, in, instead of being down there in Mobile or Mobile, Alabama. So uh, questionable decision-making. I, I don't think that's going to kill his NFL chances by any means, but he obviously was not a top prospect already. And the last thing the NFL wants is backup players getting into trouble. Um, what's your thoughts on Stetson and any idea why a player of his caliber would not go to the senior bowl? And I've heard the excuse. Well, I mean, season went long, maybe a little tired, but last time I checked, Jason, there's players from Georgia and TCU down there. So I, I don't really understand the logic there. In terms of the incident, I honestly don't think it's going to matter all that much unless something more comes out of it that we don't currently know. You know, if you remember going back a few years now, Baker Mayfield had a not totally dissimilar incident. That one caught on camera didn't stop him from being the number one overall pick. Now, I'm not saying, obviously, that that's going to happen with Stetson Bennett. The point more being is the NFL is a little more forgiving of those sort of things when there's no long-term legal or moral consequence of it. Now, Stetson Bennett is an older prospect. I, I'm sure your listeners are very aware of how much older he is than your typical draft prospect. But there are going to be teams that, not because of the age, obviously, but because of the on-field maturity like him. You you look at what happened in that national title game, and I, Kirby, Kirby Smart spoke about this right after the game. You know, the third and long, he immediately identifies that, you know, that free runner on his left, baits him in, does the spin out at the right time because he knows if he's able to spin out, he's got the free lane of the first down. That's not you know, just having good instincts. That's reading the situation correctly and process, processing the information fast. He's very, very, very good at that. I don't know if that's going to be enough, obviously. Like he is physically limited in terms of what he can do as a passer. Like he's more mobile than he's largely gotten credit for. Doesn't mean that he's physically gifted, obviously. He's he's going to be one of the smaller quarterbacks in the draft, including Bryce Young. He's older. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't get drafted. And if he gets drafted, it's going to be on day three, probably late on day three. But, you know, there are definitely a lot of coaches, a lot of talented evaluators in the NFL with strong ties to the Georgia program. And they've been hearing for multiple years now, because this is the first year that obviously that Cesar Bennett was eligible for the draft, that, you know, there's a lot more to this kid than just being this, this former walk-on. So we see quarterbacks like this get chances in the NFL, ones with far less ped pedigree and talent than Stetson Bennett. You know, this is going back a long way. I'm not even sure that your listeners are going to remember this. But Matt McGloin, Penn State, under Bill O'Brien, had this like resurgence, kind of similar to Stetson Bennett, like late in his career, wasn't really much of a guy, former walk-on, ends up having like about a half-decade career as a backup starter, a handful of games. 
it wouldn't shock me if Stetson Ben has the opportunity to do something like that. And look, like you and I have doubted him in the past. Everybody is, or almost everybody is doubting him now in terms of what he could do in the NFL. And, you know, we've been wrong before, but I, I, don't, I don't want to make it out to be that his chances are so much stronger than they really are, but I also don't want to totally discount the, the chance that he turns into something if it's only a backup in the NFL. Let me ask you real quick, just to follow up on on that. Um, I, I've heard it. It's been said many a times. I just want to see if you, what your opinion on it, but a lot of people say they'd rather be an undrafted free agent than be drafted in say the seventh round, uh, particularly if you're a quarterback, you can pick your situation, the system, the coaching staff and all that. Do you buy into that or, or do you, would you rather get drafted? It's not just a question of buying into that. It just is true. Like I have over the years talked to a variety of agents. I did this embed piece years ago with like a medium sized agency that was dealing with this exact question where like they had a handful of clients who could have gone late in the draft or might have gone undrafted. And like obviously they don't have a ton of control over if a player gets drafted or not. They can decide where that player goes if he is not drafted. And there are not always, but usually a lot more options. It's all the things you stated, having more you know, flexibility in terms of what kind of a team or scheme you're able to attach that client to. Also, the signing bonus can be a lot bigger now than it was even like 10, 15 years ago. Like some of those undrafted free agents are essentially signing for deals that are in terms of the guaranteed money, not dissimilar from very late round picks. So you can choose your team instead of having the team chosen for you. You can get a similar amount of guaranteed money if you're a higher end undrafted free agent prospect. And the other be or benefit here is if you're undrafted and you sign a deal, it's a three-year deal. If you're drafted anywhere after round one, it's a four-year deal flat. And that is an opportunity, again, for that player to cash in. Because if you have a really good three-year run, now you're not an unrestricted free agent. like You don't just hit the open market. But after that third year, and after that second year sometime, you can negotiate for more money. And that's where things get very interesting. So you see this every now and then, like Austin Eckler, a handful of years ago, undrafted player, lands with the Chargers, special teams players first year, and then the second and third year becomes a featured running back, and then like the featured running back. He signed a long-term extension after his third year. You do not see that with most players who are drafted after three years, unless they're absolute superstar, you know, quarterbacks, pass rushers, receivers. Like if you're not in that extremely, extremely uh, elite group, it's probably better to be a high-functioning undrafted player who's able to pick a spot and then cash in on it. Now, let me ask you this, Jason. Two players, elite uh, prospects, as I understand it, and they certainly were arguably uh, two of the best players in the SEC last year. Jalen Carter, the defensive lineman from Georgia. Will Anderson, the linebacker from Alabama. Um, you know, I have to think, if not for – uh, the importance of a quarterback position. I mean, these two would be vying for the the top two positions in the draft, and they they're such good players. They may even do that, uh, even with the uh, you know the value of the quarterback position. If you had a top pick, which way would you go? And does that maybe depend on on your need and your scheme and everything? Will Anderson, Jalen Carter, which one do you think is the better NFL prospect? Well, it's always going to depend on your scheme, right? Like. There's certain schemes for which you very much need to collapse the pocket with interior pressure. And in that case, Jalen Carter makes all the sense in the world. Not that he wouldn't make sense if that isn't what your scheme is predicated on, but that would be the preference. If you need someone to set the edge, to you know bend the corner and take down the quarterback that way, 
Will Anderson is going to be the choice for you. And it's worth noting here, Will Anderson, well, we've seen other prospects like Will Anderson. We haven't seen one of those prospects like Will Anderson at Alabama, right? Like that pure top-end edge-rushing talent. Like they've had a ton of interior guys. Obviously, they put you know, mountains of players in the league. That's not what we're saying here. It's that kind of potentially all pro caliber edge rusher. That has not really happened in Alabama in a long time. Will Anderson is absolutely, at least as a prospect, capable of becoming that kind of a player. So he comes in with a lot more refinement than you get of a lot of these prospects because he went through the Alabama system. He was obviously highly productive there. You know, he can still grow as a player, but he comes in at this very, very high floor, extremely athletically gifted. So look, if either one of those was the top defensive player, no one would bat an eyelash. Those are the top two defensive players in this draft from everything that I hear. And we haven't had the combine yet. That could change things a little bit. I know Texas Tech has a defensive tackle that a lot of teams are high on. And, and maybe if he tests, you know, incredibly well, that could tilt it a little bit. But as things stands right stand right now. Based on what I'm hearing, it's Carter and Anderson's the top two defenders. And I don't think you can go wrong with either one, right? Like nothing's a guarantee, but those guys are as strong of bets as we've seen in a long time at their respective positions. What's your thoughts on uh, Jalen Hyatt, the, the Bolitnikoff winner, Tennessee receiver? You already referenced Heupel. His system's kind of unique and uh, not a lot of skill position from, from that system kind of comes into the NFL and, and is really ready to play necessarily but he does have incredible incredible speed i don't know how well that translates to the nfl because everybody's so fast but uh thoughts on him as a prospect could you see him going uh pretty early in the upcoming nfl draft and and of course i you know the the dream scenario a lot of jalen hyatt fans see is him going to kansas city I don't know if he'd last that long, but just playing in an offense like that, it, it, that would seem like the ideal situation for a, a Jalen Hyatt. Well, he's a complicated prospect. So you look at what he did at Tennessee. Obviously, the numbers are incredible. The efficiency is some of the best we've ever seen for a receiver given that volume. But, you know, he's not the biggest guy. He's extremely fast. I, I would be shocked if he doesn't run in the 4-3 range. Like we're talking about even by NFL standards, elite, elite speed. But he operated primarily from the slot, which means different things at Tennessee than it does certain other offenses. But that is going to contribute to being viewed differently in the NFL. A lot of teams will view him as a slot receiver only. But when you're that fast, you have, I think, the upside of being able to uh, compete on the boundary as well. Not that everybody who's fast is Tyreek Hill. And I'm not trying to say that he's Tyreek Hill. I want to be very clear. I'm just using this comparison in the abstract. But Tyreek Hill does not fit the physical dimensions of a boundary receiver either, but he's able between what he does with his speed and frankly, what he does as a router, he doesn't get enough credit for it. He's able to operate on the boundary and in the slot too. You know, he's, he's deployed in multiple ways. Now, Hyatt is not at that level in terms of refinement. He wasn't asked to do that Tennessee. He may never end up being that player, but if, if in the long term, he is able to refine his craft as a route runner because that speed is going to be there. I think he can become more than just a slot receiver. And if that's the case, it wouldn't be shocking to see him go early in the second round. This is viewed as being not like a superstar receiver class at the very top. Like some teams really like Quentin uh, Quint Johnson, the TCU receiver from a physical standpoint, but they all kind of view him as being like a guy who needs to learn more on the job based on what he was able, what what he did at TCU. He's going to, he need to refine himself more. And if that's like the closest we have to a consensus top guy. It's a, it's going to be a lot more muddled. So there could be teams that view Hyatt 
maybe even as like the third best receiver in this draft. There are going to be teams that might not view him as anything other than like a third round pick. Now, I, I doubt he lasts that long because it only takes one team to take you, obviously. But I, I think he's probably going to go after that first like big swath of receivers and before the end of day two, kind of in that middle range. And, you know, if it's a team like Kansas City, as you pointed out, like that would make a lot of sense. They certainly know how to deploy that speed. They know how to deploy players creatively. And I think early on, you're going to need to get creative with him because he's not coming in with all of the little tricks of the trade. Not that receivers always do that, obviously, but I think it's going to take some time before he's able to do more than like two or three things really well. But with the right coaching staff in a couple of years, he could end up being a very impactful player. I think that upside is definitely there. Now, the last prospect I wanted to ask you about, Jason, LSU receiver Keishon Butte, who he's a guy that seemingly struggled to adjust to the coaching change uh, under Brian Kelly. He said he's coming back. Then about a week later, going to the NFL, this is a guy that uh, came into college in an immediate, immediate impact showcase that, you know, he's got as much talent as anybody. I would imagine anyone evaluating Butte just go back to the SEC championship. He did what he wanted to do against Georgia, which hardly anybody did this season. So, I mean, it, the, you know, the, the ceiling is massive. I would also think the floor, I mean, this is like the ultimate boomer bust. I think he's got the potential to be a NFL star. Just given what I know about him, I could see him, you know, getting drafted and then never playing in the NFL. I mean, it, there, there's <laughs> could go any way with him. Any thoughts on Keyshawn Butte hearing anything and on his draft prospects? Well, I can tell you for a fact that there were several NFL teams that were surprised when he declared. Not that they don't think he can be a high-level NFL player if things work out. They thought he would go back for another season or maybe go in the transfer portal and, and do something like that. But they thought he would play another season of college before he came out to the NFL. So that surprised some teams. Now, teams are surprised by this every year. Like That in and of itself is not indicative of anything other than what the teams expected. But he's going to be a polarizing prospect because physically he does have pretty much everything you look for. Like he's not the biggest guy, but he's probably going to measure in tall enough for most teams. Like, you know, teams would love to get like, you know, the six, four plus super fast, super athletic receiver. Obviously, everyone would love to have that. But I don't think you have to be that anymore to be like a, a successful split end receiver, that true X. Like you can be, you know, a Devontae Adams kind of receiver, right? Like, Adams is about 6'1", about 210 pounds, maybe a little less now. He has slimmed down over the years. And he's able to just destroy defenders with that size because of all the little things he can do because of the power that he brings. That's the kind of game that Booty could have if he develops. Now, you also laid out the downside, right? Like, he looked great as a freshman, was one of the better freshman receivers we've seen in a long time, and he's still kind of the same player. Like, Esme is productive, but in terms of what skill set he brings, I don't think that he's developed a ton since then. At least it's not the perspective that I've heard from NFL teams. Now, sometimes that happens. Obviously, he you know went through a coaching change, as you mentioned. I, I don't know if there's going to be a huge, huge market for him in terms of teams. Like, I don't know if he's going to be someone that, like, you know, two-thirds of the teams want to take in the top 100 picks. But I could see there being somewhere between, like, five and 10 teams that would love to get him because of his athletic upside anywhere after the first round of the draft, because we see guys like that, guys who were underutilized in college for whatever reason, but still have all those athletic gifts come to the NFL and blossom. You know, recently we've seen like Stefan Diggs, a guy who was a five-star prospect goes to Maryland because he was a local kid. You know, he was 
productive, but he wasn't, you know, anything crazy. He ends up going in the fifth round, becomes, you know, a superstar by the end of his second season. You know, Boudet has that kind of upside. Not so like one to one that kind of player, but like that kind of impact potential if he's with the right team and he puts it all together. Now that's true, obviously, of a lot of prospects, but you know, I think teams of late have been more willing to bet on the traits than they have been looking for proven productivity. And you know, LSU produced a lot of good receivers of late, right? Like, there's no shortage of guys at LSU. Like, when's the last LSU receiver who like really hasn't made much of a mark in the league? Like Terrence Marshall, I guess. Was the last one who hasn't been crazy, but he's been hurt too, so that's not totally fair. Yeah, I mean it's it's basically receiver you down there right now with uh, Chase and Jefferson tearing it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know what's going to happen. With, we obviously don't know what's going to happen with any of these prospects. Boudé is interesting. My guess is a team that runs some version of like the Shanahan McVay offense, who know how to get the ball in the hands of the receivers, even if the receivers are not like great route runners yet. That's going to be the kind of team I imagine he'll be in, or he'll be of most interest to, because you know you don't have to throw you know 15 yards down the field to get the ball in his hands. Like you can scheme stuff up creatively in the run game on jet sweeps, all those sort of things. You know, also in the RPO game he could be successful. Those are things that those offenses tend to do very well, and you can make a lot of you you can create a lot of damage that way early in his career, and then wait you know for him to develop down the line. I, I could see that happening, but. We'll see. He's he's not going to be the most popular receiver in the draft. He's also not going to be the most unpopular. He's very much in that middle range, and we'll just have to see what happens come April. All right. I really appreciate all your time, Jason. Last thing, just wanted to get your thoughts on this, something that I asked you leading up to this, but somewhat of a unique situation. The Bears got the number one pick. They also got you know, a very young and promising quarterback in Justin Fields. I guess maybe it's not that unique because I, I believe the Jaguars just went through this. But uh, how would you handle that situation? Um, and, and is it unfortunate for them? It, it doesn't seem like there's a slam dunk number one quarterback out there. They may be forced to keep that pick. I would imagine they're shopping it like crazy, though. What do you, what do you think? If there was a an Andrew Luck or a Trevor Lawrence caliber quarterback prospect right at the top, yeah, I think they would take that quarterback. And even though Justin Fields has shown promise, I think you just make the move because you don't get chances at those kind of players very often. Usually you don't get a chance at that at all. But as you pointed out, that doesn't exist. Like these are not bad quarterback prospects. I don't want that to be the takeaway. But none of these guys are that like you just cannot miss the opportunity to take them kind of prospects. So from that perspective, I really don't think there's a good answer other than to trade the pick. You know, Opinions can vary on what Justin Fields is going to be as an NFL quarterback. Like he destroyed several teams this year as a runner and made some incredible passes. As a passer on the whole, though, it left a lot to be desired. He has a lot of room to grow there. And it's not a guarantee that he ends up making those strides. But I think even if he doesn't, even if he's a quarterback that a year from now, they feel like they're going to have to move on from, trading this pick is still the right move. You have the Houston Texans number two. Everyone expects them to take a quarterback, whether they're there or whether they're actually the team trading up to your pick to make sure they get whatever quarterback they prefer. If you make the trade, you can expect there to be multiple first round picks and several other assets, whether they're additional draft picks or players coming your way. If you make that trade and Justin Fields doesn't develop, you have all the ammunition you need the following year to go back at the top of the draft if you're not already there to get, whether it's you know Caleb Williams, Drake may, obviously there could be other quarterbacks that we're not even thinking of right now there. Like you'll have another shot at this, even if Justin Fields doesn't develop. 
And if he does, if he does become the guy that the Bears under a different regime, admittedly, thought that he was going to be, well, guess what? You just turned the number one overall pick into a bunch of picks and you can load all that, you know, you can load around him on offense. You can add pieces to that defense. Like there's an area where they could theoretically like trade down to four with the Colts, get Jalen Carter, Will Anderson there anyway, and then still pick up an additional first round pick and more to use next year on whatever they want, whether that's to, you know, get another player, whether that's to get a new quarterback, whatever you want. Like, I feel like that gives you the maximum amount of options. Whereas if you keep the pick, regardless of what you use it for, you box yourself in, in a way that you don't have to. So I, I don't know that's what the Bears are going to do. Like this is a pretty much a new GM. Like he he arrived about a year ago now. And we haven't, I mean, like he basically had to spend his first year on the job clearing the decks, like getting rid of all of the bad money. Like, you know, he traded Kalimek, who was still a good player, but just he had to get all this money off of their books. Like it was, they were tanking without declaring that they were tanking for being honest about it. So this is his first real year as the GM from the perspective of he can start building the team how he sees fit. And we don't have any useful data points for what he's going to do. So because of that, I can't tell you what they're going to do, but I can say with at least some amount of confidence that the best move from them for them long-term will be to trade the pick, even if Justin Fields isn't the ultimate franchise quarterback that they're hoping he is. And I guess we'll find out in about two and a half months what the ultimate result is. But yeah, I, I think that trading the pick makes the most sense. They're definitely gonna be suitors for that pick. Houston being right there means that if you're another team that wants a quarterback, and especially if you don't want like, we'll just take whoever in the top three. Like usually it's like we like one or two of these guys. If you're a team outside of the top two, you have no guarantee that you're going to get your guy. And the Bears are very much open for business and they've declared as such. So you make the trade, you do what you have to do, you get the guy. And if you're the Bears, you just profit. Like you, in a certain sense, this season could not have worked out better for the Bears. They landed the number one overall pick. They had enough reason to feel optimistic about Justin Fields after having a very down rookie year. Obviously that wasn't totally his fault, but still it was not a promising first season in the NFL. You know, he showed enough promise that it, that it validates the second season. They can turn the number one pick into a number of, of items that they could use to build the roster now and in the future. I, I just think that makes the most sense. I expect that to be the way it goes. But again, we don't know what this front office is going to do in these situations because they haven't had to be in the situation before. And it's going to make this draft a lot more intriguing than we've had in a long time. Well, Jason, I can't thank you enough uh, before you know, for all this information, I mean, this is uh, the the most NFL we, we've probably ever talked on this show, but uh, I think the audience is really going to love it. Before you go, can you tell everyone what's the easiest, best way to find all your work? Well, you can find me on Twitter, at least as long as Twitter continues to exist, at <laughs> by underscore JBH. You can find my work at The Leap, that's theleap.substack.com. We cover the Packers primarily, but we also cover the NFL and college football. Uh, for those who are very SEC-focused, as I imagine your audience is, a nice long feature on Todd Mockin from my time with him. Very interesting guy, had a lot to say. I think it'll be very eye-opening for people who really want to know what he's like as a person, what he's like as a coach. I think he revealed both those things when I spoke with him. You can find my work at Vox Media, that's SB Nation, that's DK Nation. That's where we do a lot of the fantasy and gambling content. And yeah, my work has also appeared at Sports Illustrated, NFL.com, as you mentioned earlier. So I'm really happy that you made the time for me to come on, Mike. Like This has been a long time coming. Love talking football with you. Absolutely. And I'll put links in the show description to all of that. Thank you, my friend. And we'll catch you uh, hopefully pretty soon. All right, so just want to say thanks again, Jason, for joining the show. I hope everybody really got something out of that interview. Again, a different guest, perfect off-season guest 
to be on this program. And uh, of all the people, everybody that I work with, honestly, everybody at NFL.com, just tremendously talented, driven people. But Jason was one of my favorites. He and I used to work uh, the third shift uh, overnight, just talking football, just like we did here, except this time we filmed the thing. But uh, he's one of the sharpest football minds I know, got a great background. So again, we'll, we'll have to have him on the show for sure. But uh, hey, that's going to do it. And hopefully next time you see me, Cousin Shane will be here with me. We'll be back from vacation. His long vacation is about to come to an end. Enjoy the game this weekend, and we'll catch you on the next one. Hey, buddy, this beer's for you, Mike, and Cousin Shane. That SEC podcast loves the Pirate, and the Pirate loves that SEC podcast. Hail State.